Well, we have been through quite a week of uh, not only political confusion, states flip-flopping. I don't know if you were like me, but I was giving regular attention to checking in and watching uh, as votes came in, watching percentages go back and forth with interest. And uh, as the votes continue to get counted, we were all, I mean, going through an anxiety, regardless of of whoever we voted for, or even if we by conscious didn't vote, uh, just kind of the tension of, you know, what what are the next four years going to look like? Who is going to be kind of at the wheel of uh, the political thing that we know of as the United States of America? And yesterday morning, as I was stuffing my face with uh, pancakes and turkey bacon, which isn't bacon, um, so you don't make fun of Aaron in the comments for that. It, it's okay. It's good. Uh, but I was eating pancakes as the news came in, as the text was given, uh, that Joe Biden was now uh, president-elect. And so this uh, led to all of the uh, interviews with folks and conversations. And then last night, uh, his speech alongside uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's speech, the, the, uh, the, the political kind of everything that we had been watching over the past week began to come to head. And, and as it seems is going to continue uh, over the next few weeks, not only as uh, we begin to hear kind of a vision and direction from President-elect Biden, but also uh, the response from uh, current President Donald Trump. Now, as crazy as this week has been, what I wanted to do was uh, just invite you to join me in Ryan's little imaginary time machine. As you and I, us together, we're going to roll back to the year 68 AD in the city of Rome. So hop on in, make sure to wear your seatbelts. Please keep your arms and legs inside the time machine at all times. As we go back to June 9th, 68 AD, where the tyrannical rule of Caesar Nero came to an end. I've mentioned this before. I've talked about Nero in the past, but there on June 9th is when his rule came to an end. Now, if you haven't, or you haven't been around for these conversations around good old Nero, uh, Nero uh, came to power as his mother allegedly poisoned the, pre- the previously sitting Caesar, got her son uh, into ruling. And, and then as she began to kind of, you know, mommy parent uh, Nero being in and through Uh, his rule. Uh, He kind of had enough of it, had his mom assassinated. Over the course of his rule and reign, he went through four wives and husbands, uh, each of them dying through murder or some kind of conspiracy behind Nero. He kicked off the great fire of Rome, burning down multiple neighborhoods, all so that he could build a palace in his name. Under this, he all went through multiple treason trials. That's just on the political level. Nero's relationship to the Christians uh, led to deep persecution, Christians being fed to beasts, crucified and even lit on fire. Over the course of Nero's reign, one historian remarked that Nero lost all sense of right and wrong and listened to flattery with total credulity. The Senate declared Nero a public enemy. They ended up sending armed men to arrest him. And as he saw them coming up the way, uh, wanted to commit suicide, wasn't able to do it. And so he forced his secretary to do it. Now, before we go, I want to take a quick look at everybody's favorite. Unless, have they seen him yet? No, here he is. All right. So this is actually, uh, I had just a picture of the, the statue or the bust of Nero originally. And then on my like nerdy Ryan, like Bible nerd Twitter account that I have, uh, where I just follow a bunch of Bible nerds, uh, they had actually done a reconstruction of Nero. And so uh, based off some uh, descriptions of him, there's our redhead with whatever that weird beard face thing is he's got. Nero was not a looker is basically what we're getting down to. So this is, here's Nero. Here's who was in power for years and years and years. And then ultimately um, ended up uh, killing himself as was about before he was about to be arrested. So there was Clearly, though, in Roman history, no peaceful transition uh, like we would expect here within our states. This kicked off the death of Nero a little over a year of political chaos and civil war, what historians now refer to as the year of the four emperors. Where is this all going? Just, just keep with me. A little history lesson. You don't have to remember it. Just be along for the ride. Right after uh, Nero came to power was a man named Galba. He was a Roman governor. He looks like uh, what his name is. He just looks like a Galba when you see the picture of him. Now, he originally led the political revolt and uprising against Nero and so so he naturally came into power. His reign, however, was cut short after seven months when Othno, there's a picture of Othno, also a looker, uh, who was originally a conspirator with Galba, betrayed him, killed him, took power. Othno's reign, however, was only for three months until another governor by the name of Vitellius came in and killed Othno, 
do you see just, you know, no peaceful transition of power here. It was just, it, it just led to this huge uh, civil war, battle after battle, fight after fight, conspiracy after conspiracy. Now, Vitellius was in power for eight months until General Vespasian came back from Galilee and Judea. You see, General Vespasian had been sent out by Nero three years earlier to quell the Jewish revolt that was happening in and around Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. In the process of quelling this uh, upheaval, he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple with it. After doing so, he returns to Rome. He finds that his, you know, Caesar Nero has uh, been dealt with and now sitting on the place is Vitellius. He's had enough of it. He puts it into Vitellius kills him, takes the title of Caesar for himself. And interestingly, not just taking the title of Caesar and with it, son of God, but also claiming the title of Messiah or Christ, king of the Jews on accord of what he had done in Galilee and, Julie, uh, Galilee and Judea the years before. Now with his uh, stepping into power here in around 68, 69 AD, what, what was then published out from Rome was similar to kind of our, you know, breaking news, what you would have seen if you were watching yesterday, breaking news, you know, President-elect Joe Biden, similar to breaking news, it was this, this political word, a euangelion, it was an announcement of news, good news. It's actually where we as Christians get the word gospel. It's a political announcement. And similar to what we had with uh, Barrett, uh, um, Kamala Harris and Biden's speech last night, Rome distributed out this new gospel of Caesar Vespasian. Instead of just being a speech about a vision for Rome, it was the story of Vespasian's life. It was propaganda. It was a story of his life, his ascension to the throne, why he deserved the title of son of God or the son of Zeus in this case, or the Messiah, the king of the Jews. Josephus, historian, accounts all of this if you think I'm making it up. Now, why in the world does Ryan just, why do we just talk through all the political upheaval, everything going on in Rome in 68 AD? What's going on here? One, not only just to point to the great blessing that it is to live within a democracy like the United States. Can you imagine all of the political craziness right now? And then you add to it that every couple of months you got some other assassination and then a new guy, you know, is doing a presidential speech. Oh man, I'm grateful for where we live. Now, that's not the main reason though. The main reason that I tell you all of this is because this, as I alluded to last week, is the political climate that Mark is living within as he and the apostle Peter are meeting in Rome to write their gospel. Historians place the gospel of Mark of being written somewhere around 70 AD, right within a couple years of this time. This is what is going on as Mark and Peter are recounting the story of Jesus. And so Mark's gospel, what we're reading today is not simply this ancient document that's recounting the eyewitnesses uh, um, experience of the ministry and life and teachings of Jesus. Yes, and amen to that. However, more to the point, the original audience for Mark and Peter, when they're gathering together to write this story, is they are writing it to churches, to Christians around the Roman empire. The true gospel not of Vespasian, but of Jesus Christ, in contrast to Vespasian's gospel that had been spread around the region. And as they do this, Mark and Peter are working to call for these churches, these Christians to renew, to once again give their faith, their allegiance to Jesus the King. What had originally been oral tradition through rabbis and elders within their community was now coming to them in a papyrus from an eyewitness from Peter's account. They're saying, Jesus is the true King. Jesus is the true Son of God, the true Messiah. Regardless of what Vespasian claims this is where we're calling for you to give your allegiance, for you to find your courage, for you to find your boldness and your hope as you live now within this new ruler's reign. So as we arrive at what I referred to last week is quite literally, as you'll see in a moment, the mountaintop moment of Mark's gospel. We see what Peter and Mark understood as the great need for the Jewish and Gentile Christians living under Roman rule, living under this new Vespasian government. And with it, also for us today, living within a maybe very different, you know, thank God, but, but similar political upheaval, new leaders and new visions of what this could be. Where do we go? What do we, what do we need? What we're gonna find from Mark and Peter today is the great need for that original audience and the great need for us is the need for an apocalypse, the need for an apocalypse. My notes as always are there in the comments where, where they've been posted so you can follow along as you'd like. Now, 
Uh, as a brief note, before we get, we pray and we get into it, much of what we're gonna go through today uh, was written and finished on Thursday. And so part of, you know, me sitting there getting the announcement over my, my pancakes was not only like, okay, good, we, we figured out where we're going, what the next four years are gonna look like, but also in the back of my mind going, oh my goodness, I've got, I've got major uh, movements and tweaks and adjustments to make. So here's what I'll say. Today is not the final word. Uh, clearly the, the gospel speaks to political dimensions. And so we're gonna continue to do that. And so I'm gonna to try to do the best that I can, but give me the benefit of the doubt. If you've got questions or concerns or anything like that, feel free to reach out and email. Um, I'm gonna do the best I can with what we got. So luckily the interpretation doesn't change and the main uh, message doesn't change, but some little application points, man. So let's pray. And then we're gonna get into the gospel of Mark. Father, we thank you that once again, I, I prayed this last week. We are grateful that this, this Bible, that this word to us here, um, does not come to us out of some sort of vacuum of, of kind of non-existence. It's not grounded in any con, con, uh, con, context or cultural moment, um, but, it, but it, it's been shaped and, and moved within. It's your inspired word has come to humans within the human story. And so in times like where we are with new political rulers, with even uh, the, the question of transition of power and all of that, that uh, your gospel of Mark actually speaks to some of that in some way. And so my prayer is that you might help us to receive that today. Help us to see Mark and Peter's main point in giving us this story and that it might be a source of courage and boldness and celebration as we move into the weeks ahead. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's get into it with Mark chapter nine, beginning in verse two, where Mark writes, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So where we ended last week was the disciples, Peter in particularly, struggling with this idea that Jesus has set before them, that the mission of the Messiah is one of suffering. That victory and glory and power in the Messiah's way actually looks like loss. It looks like weakness. It looks like suffering and death. So they're still struggling with this. And so Jesus invites kind of this close group of these three, Peter, James, and John with him on a little hiking expedition where hopefully he can help them with their questions and thoughts. And so as they arrive to the top of this high mountain, Mount Hermon, most historians would point this to being. Jesus there at the top of this mountain is transfigured before them. This is not a word that we normally use, but it points to this idea of being transformed. There is this something opening up and being unveiled. It's an apocalypse. A moment ago, I said the main thing that Mark and Peter are trying to give us that they think that we need to hear is an apocalypse. And here we have an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, an apocalypse in the English language, the way that we use it, is so weirdly different and distinct from the way that it was used in the Bible's worldview. You see, we say apocalypse and we think of the end of the world or we think of certain movies with, well, Armageddon is the Bruce Willis one. But we think of apocalypse, we think of giant battles, the end of the world, the earth being torn open, the 2012 movie, or uh, the day the earth stood still, or uh, what's the Jake G Gyllenhaal one that we were talking about? The, the first like really big climate change end of the world movie. Something of tomorrow, the day there was tomorrow. I don't remember, but Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, our sweet prince. Uh, the, we, when we think apocalypse, we think end of the world. And what's so strange is in the biblical language, an apocalypse is simply a language for something being unveiled. Something that was previously hidden or veiled that has now been unveiled. It has now been revealed. It's now been put on display. The transfiguration here, again, at the very middle of this gospel, the kind of mountaintop point of all of this gospel, here is an apocalypse, an unveiling of who Jesus truly is. It is a revelation of who he is. And what do we find about who Jesus truly is? Here's your other big 50 cent word for the day, that this apocalypse, this unveiling is a theophany. It is, a, it is a visible manifestation of the divine. It is a manifest, visible manifestation of God. How am I getting that? Well, within the Jewish writings and the Jewish authorship that this is coming out of, the clothing that is on Jesus right now is the clothing that is only used to describe what God himself wears throughout the Old Testament. 
You can go back and read Daniel 7 as a great example of this, where uh, the creator God, the God of Israel, the ancient of days, as he's described, is here wearing almost the exactly, it's, it's the same description of the clothing that he's wearing here. In this vision, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi to his, his Jewish followers is revealing himself as the true God, as they would have understood it. It's not just this like, hey, I am God. It's coming forward in a declaration that they would have understood in a way that they would have understood. And so here we have this moment, all of the questions and the doubts that they had had about this, this Messiah who would suffer and be rejected and die, that that's not truly what a Messiah, what a King looks like, is here being unveiled to being more than just truly the Messiah, but to be dressed in like the clothing of God himself, the divine identity of Jesus in this moment is being revealed for them. And so Mark and Peter here are offering this story for three reasons, for both the original audience in Rome and for us today. The first is that this is an eyewitness history. As second Peter, uh, who's with Mark writing this, he would one day later write, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the mountain. And then he recounts what we're about to read. On one hand, this is putting forward the faithfulness of our faith, the trustworthiness of this story of who Jesus is, as we're dealing here with an eyewitness account. And then from that is, again, Peter would say in, in his letter that we have a prophetic word, a preached word more fully confirmed, not just in the transfiguration, but in the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing that they're doing is they're giving us an eyewitness history. This really happened. This is really a story. The second thing that they're doing is again, to bring back Vespasian, this is a counter Roman propaganda that was being distributed. Counter the gospel of Vespasian here in the middle of this gospel of Jesus Christ, we have something happening to him that I, I can't like nerd Ryan overstate this enough is without analogy in the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Greek writings and the rest of the second temple Judaism writing. And, the, and there's nowhere else in the writings of this day. This is an utterly unique moment that is without analogy, where the identity of God seems to merge within this human. Caesar's claimed to be a son of God, but this language here of him being dressed in the garbs of God, God himself, in this, these poetic uh, um, prophetic languages of the Old Testament, this is without, I mean, when you compare this to Vespasian, it's a completely different thing. To drive it more, you know, to, to the example being brought to home a little bit more is, you know, some of you, many of you likely watched Kamala Harris's and uh, Joe Biden's speech last night with fireworks and, and confetti cannons and everything going on. And here's this moment of, in some sense, glory of weight and power and political, all of that kind of hope, all these kind of languages and things coming together, depending on where you lean. And, and this is the kind of picture and portrait that Rome had been getting a Vespasian over the past year, a year, two years even. And so Mark and Peter are coming alongside and trying to describe something that's so much greater in glory that it cannot be compared. This is a counter political propaganda that they're writing here. But even more to the point, the third, is that this here is the pastoral answer. The pastoral answer to the varying emotions of those early Christians living around 70 AD and, and many of them shared with us. For some in the midst of their confusion at Vespasian coming to power and his claims, specifically his claims of being the Messiah, being the Christ, being the son of God, all these things that you had been hearing in church were claimed of God, all of this confusion of, well, who's really in charge in this moment, that confusion, they're trying to help give you certainty about the identity of Jesus. Similarly, for those early Christians who are suffering fear in the face of the political powers, fear of possibly being on the wrong side of history, fear of being against who truly was the one with power. In this moment, this apocalypse, this revealing of the identity of Jesus is meant to give boldness, certainty over the identity of Jesus, boldness in the identity of Jesus. And then also for those who were experiencing a welling up sense of deep pride and allegiance being given to Vespasian. The reminder through this apocalypse is the true source of pride and allegiance that ought to be for those who identify themselves as followers of Jesus. So the, the transfiguration here is an answer to questions about historical intrigue, about the historical Jesus. It's, it's an answer to the questions of what is, what is our faith and our hope and our boldness in the midst of political transition. And it's an answer to what about the pastoral concerns, the concerns of our heart as we go through our lives. And the transfiguration, this moment of seeing Jesus in this dress and what he's looking like 
is meant to be a source of certainty, of boldness, of allegiance and pride. Yes, this is the true glorious one. This is the true king. And so alongside all of the celebrations yesterday, what we could call the apocalypse of our next president, Mark and Peter here are reminding us that at the center of their story, at the center of history, there is a greater apocalypse. There is a a greater unveiling of one who is even more worthy of our attention, our celebration, our honor, our worship, and our allegiance. They're setting before us, counter to Vespasian, this is where it truly belongs. Let's keep going. In Mark 9, verses four through six, where there Jesus now, his clothes have been transformed. He looks like God. And there appeared to him, Elijah with Moses. And they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. Let's, uh, let us make three tents, one for each of you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So Jesus here, clothed, the, the, the apocalypse has not stopped. Jesus has been transformed to be wearing the clothing. And even in Luke and Matthew's gospel says that even his face was shining. Again, language of what what God is described as in the Old Testament. But here now standing with him are Elijah and Moses, who they themselves also experienced a mountaintop, you know, apocalypse, a theophany in their own lives. Here they are again, where they get to join in for another one. Many throughout history have pointed to Elijah and Moses as being kind of the figureheads of the law and the prophets. That is all of the Old Testament. They're kind of the spokesmen for them. Moses was the one who through the law and in his uh, writings foretold a one who was to come, bringing an ultimate exodus. Elijah also was a foretold forerunner who would come before the another ultimate exodus. The exodus language is just all throughout this story. And so here you have both Elijah and Moses endorsing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the King. I love that in Luke's uh, gospel account, you know, Mark just says they were talking to one another. Luke makes it explicit. They were talking to Jesus about his exodus, about the work that he was coming to do. So the idea here is Elijah and Moses, that Jesus has been set forward as the true nomination for the son of God, the Messiah, and even God himself. Elijah and Moses show up alongside him in support, endorsing him in his claims. I mean, this is, these are the big electoral votes. Elijah and Moses are the battleground states. You got these guys, you know, you're on your way home. You've got it in the can. And, And with these two, having them show up, and giving an endorsement to Jesus as the Messiah. Once again, this is counter Vespasian claims, counter claims to the political propaganda. But even more than that, this is Ryan's weekly reminder. Say it every single week, I I think, maybe every week. I should go back and count. That, That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, of the law and the prophets, of the words of Elijah and Moses and all of them around. To understand Jesus is to look back at the writings and the stories of the Old Testament of Elijah and Moses to to find what it means for him to be reigning king and Messiah is to look back at those writings. You cannot understand Jesus apart from the Hebrew scriptures. This This is how he understood himself as the fulfillment of them. So that's my weekly reminder once again that the Old Testament rules and we need to read more of it. But I want to point out one of my favorite moments in Mark's gospel. This is, it's the greatest. It's, it's comedic and it's hilarious. And I think it's so funny every single time is right here in verse five and six is here's Peter. He's just like gone up the big hike. Jesus is transformed before him and he looks like God. And then Elijah and Moses are standing there with him. And then he's just like, um, I'm glad you brought us like, and he kind of like, you know, hits, you know, John and Peter, uh, we'll make you guys tense so that you guys can all stay here. There's been a bunch of people who have looked into like the tents and allusions to tabernacles. And that's really cool. I just love that he just becomes like this ancient, anxious host, like unexpected guest. And he's like, uh, we'll, we'll find something to get you guys something to eat. And I just love that, that it's like Mark asked him, why did you offer to build tents and tabernacles? And then verse six is Peter going, I don't know, I was terrified. I just, I don't know why I love it so much. It's just like this, this awkward Peter who like is here experiencing the transcendence of God here in Jesus. And he's like, do you guys want me to, you know, build a tent for you? And it's funny to me. Anyway, you don't have to laugh at it. It's Ryan's joke. But what happens is Elijah and Moses don't, are not the only ones who endorse. Look in verse seven and nine, it continues. Or seven and eight. Seven and eight says this. And then 
a cloud overshadows them on the mountaintop. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, then they saw no longer anyone with them, but Jesus only. So in verse eight, it all kind of ends as quickly as it started. But what's so profound is there after Elijah and Moses, we have this overshadowing cloud. Once again, like the clothing that Jesus was wearing as being kind of the clothing of God and the prophetic uh, poetry writings, here overshadowing God, this cloud that comes is this image and symbol of the manifest presence of God. This cloud showed up in Exodus when it led the people of Israel out from their slavery in Egypt. It was the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai as Moses went up to receive the law and speak with God. Again, back to Elijah, there was a cloud that came within his experience and um, and then at the tabernacle, when they built the tabernacle, and then in First Kings, when they built the temple, that the presence of God that came and dwelt was symbolized and seen as this, this overshadowing cloud. And so what's happening right here is as if Moses and Elijah's endorsement wasn't enough, God is now showing up on the mountaintop alongside Jesus. This is at this point, all, no more electoral counting. All the ballots have been, God, when God shows up and says, this is it, then it, all the votes are done. Jesus here now is being endorsed, not only by the law and the prophets, but by God himself. And in fact, with this overshadowing cloud, Jesus is now the new temple as well, the dwelling place of God with man. I mean, the dynamic work of preaching the transfiguration is like trying to distill the ocean into like a, tea glass, the amount of theology and work and vision that's happening here. I mean, we have dynamics of the Trinity happening here, of the one God who is in three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three different gods here, but Jesus being clothed like him while having the, it's the Father and the Son. This is not one God changing shapes. There's so much theology and dynamics here, but what I wanna to focus to more to the point of our cultural moment is the, the Father's words over Jesus saying, this is my beloved son. God quotes himself from Psalm chapter two, verses one through 12. I'm actually gonna read Psalm two. Um, it's a relatively short one, but I'm gonna read it all. And then we're actually gonna be singing it together here in a moment. Um, you'll see why. Uh, Psalm chapter two, literally the, the second one out of the book. And it says this, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, his Messiah, literally saying, let us burst the Lord and the Messiah's bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. Meanwhile, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then it turns, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. You see the language there from Mark. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this psalm originally written by uh, King David and him being the, the kind of the anointed, the Messiah one, the king, is, is actually makes way for Jesus to be the truer and greater fulfillment of that. That he is not simply just the, today you are my son, but the today this is my beloved son. Again, pointing to language of, of the Trinity, of Jesus being a unique sort of son. He's not just a human like David. There's something distinct happening here. But Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This is, a, this is a psalm that Jesus is king, but I just, I want everyone to notice something as, as some people are, we're getting into the Jesus is king language is that this is a word of warning, but also invitation that is in particular addressed to who? Who is Psalm two addressed to in particular as we read through this? It's the kings and rulers of the earth. 
You see, the nations in this psalm, the ends of the earth, do not belong to any particular government or ruling system, but to God and to here, his king. And each and every one of those kings and rulers will be held to account for what they do with it. If need be, they will find refuge and blessing or dash to pieces with the rod of iron, as they so eloquently put it. And so the same is true of whoever's in office. I mean, this past week, I, I just, I, I noted uh, yesterday on my, my fun Instagram uh, that, that it, was so, it was so interesting to me to find that as the president-elect Joe Biden was announced, that then that I found with those that might be more right-leaning, uh, who over the past four years have been relatively very, very supportive, now at this point begin to pull out all of the Bible verses about putting not your trust in princes and how Jesus is king and how our hope is not in government systems and and. All of those things being 100% true. The challenge for me is going, where was that over the past four years when we found nothing but hightail support of political leaders, even to the expense of allegiance to Jesus? You see, to say that Jesus is king is not simply that you say when things are bad and when you don't have political power, that, that the exile ethic that we can go all the way back to, you know, first Peter last year is one that repeatedly, regardless of who's in power and whether it's the one I want or the one that I don't, that I remind myself that Jesus is king. I remind myself that ultimate hope is not placed in, in one party or the other, one politician or the other. And the same is true that those of you that for the past four years in the midst of the Trump administration, that you might lean in whatever direction that you do, that the comforting verses for you have been words like Psalm 2, have been the words of the prophets, going back to the justice series, has been the words of the prophets. The, the reminder for you is that as we go into the next four years, those, those verses, as true as they were, underneath Donald Trump's, uh, President Trump's administration, are likewise just as true here and now that we can't pick and choose here. And in fact, us picking and choosing then is indicative of an idolatry at hand. So I would just set this before us. I think I have it somewhere in the notes, but I, in the same way, oh no, I'll save it. Let's keep going. So what does this mean then? If these verses are guiding us, then what this means is this First Timothy chapter two tells us is that for President Trump in the final weeks of his administration and then moving into the next four years with President-elect Biden, is we're going to pray for them on a regular basis as First Timothy calls for us to do, particularly praying for them to serve the nation. More importantly, Psalm 2 even writes out that they might serve the Lord with fear, with respect and honor. In particularly, after listening to President Biden over the past week and then even last night, is to hold him to account for the faith that he claims to keep in serving that Lord. And so what this means is that with President-elect Biden, we're going to celebrate, or even back with President Trump over the past four years, we're going to celebrate, we're going to be excited about partnering with them when we find him or his administration acting in keeping with the accordance of the justice and righteousness of God as revealed in the word of God. We go back to the justice series. When they're doing that well, we're going to celebrate, we're going to partner with them. And also we're going to prophetically speak and act against him or his policies when they fail. As John Tyson, a pastor in New York, put it this week, is that I'm going to give to President-elect Biden what I've given to every single president. And I will commit to do the same. And I think we should as well. I'm gonna pray for you often. I'm gonna support you where I can. And I'm gonna defy you where I must. And again, if you felt totally confident in, claim, in saying the, the, the defiant stuff within President Trump's administration, and now that irks you going into the next four years, the question is, okay, what's going on there? Or the fact that I would say praying for President Trump, but you're totally okay with President, praying for President Biden. Again, if, if you're picking and choosing which Bible verses you apply to what political leader, it's revealing your idolatry that you don't think there's actually another king in charge. And so the, the reality is, is that this posture, what I've just laid out here, is this is the posture that's seen me summarizing all of scripture. In fact, it's, I wrote this on Thursday saying, regardless of who the president is. And so it's true of President-elect Biden over the next four years. It's true of President Trump in his final weeks. But the ending of Psalm 2 moves from the uh, political leaders to all, where it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessing, or the word can be translated flourishing. Refuge is found at the end of this Psalm as a reminder in the Son of God, in the Messiah Jesus. Not in the kings and rulers. And again, we need to be aware of not just what my mouth says about this stuff, 
I just, man, I'm going off script and I'm over time, whatever. The, here's the reality. If you do not believe in the, in the amount of appeal of political idolatry after watching last night, or, or for you, maybe you lean more to the right, four years ago, or, or you know, going back and watching these pictures of um, when, when President Obama uh, was inaugurated, whatever it might be, if you do not see the allure of political idolatry, I, I, you, you have to see this. Hope, utopian vision of, of America being, you know, the soul of the nation being healed, all of this language that, that it, it is what we desire. And to have someone that seems to have so much power offering it to us and saying, if we all come together, we can actually achieve that. And the political idolatry of it, if you do not see the appeal, then you're not gonna understand Mark's gospel. You're not gonna understand Jesus because you're gonna constantly be, keep being led astray and led over to coming back to the place. I see it within myself. Time and again, whether it's a politician or there's a speech that's being given or there's some, I mean, even with President-elect Biden's speech last night, as he's talking to keeping the faith and spreading the faith and me even assuming the best of him that he's not doing this in a manipulative way, is there's, there's this, okay, this is our guy. This, might, this, this may be the guy that we've been waiting for. Whenever President Trump, you know, over the past four years would appeal to religion and appeal to faith or appeal to Jesus or, or meeting with evangelical leader. Okay, this may be our guy. If you do not see, this is a whole tangent that I'm getting down here. That's not even in the notes. We have to be aware of the allure of political idolatry. Otherwise we're going to miss a key component of the gospel, the political dimensions of it, which I would argue is what has been a huge problem with an American theology and preaching and, and churches over the past generations is we've separated the political dynamic and because of it been caught up in our own idolatry. Oh my goodness. Okay, with all of this in mind, th with this whole thing in mind, who is the true son of God? Who is the true king that all other kings and rulers need to, to make their allegiance to, lest they be dashed you know, to pieces, is what he says, or in the invitation to find blessing and refuge in him. All of this then makes sense of what comes alongside the endorsement of God from within the cloud. It is a command to listen to him. Listen to him. In the Greek that Mark's writing in, it's this Greek word, akuo, which is very fun to say, but it's, it's connection and what it is used to translate from the Hebrew is this word, shema. Now, why shema? Because I am a total nerd about shema. Shema is this word that means listen and obey. In the same word, they don't have a word for, like they do have a word for hearing. They have a word for obey. Shema though brings all of these things together. It means both at the same time. Uh, sorry, that's wrong. This is the word for both listening and obeying. That the, for, within the Hebrew world, there's no such, if you don't obey based off what you've heard, then you're not listening. You didn't actually hear it. And so this is the evidence of uh, the, the weird ways that my daughter's gonna end up in therapy one day is uh, it, it just randomly came up one day in a conversation that I had nothing to appeal to my little like three-year-old. The fact that she was listening to me, but not obeying to me that I started using language of Shema. And now Emma will like apologize when she realizes that she's not Shemaing. And so it's adorable. And, um, and so either I'm raising a, an awesome Bible scholar and nerd one day and she's gonna do incredible work in Hebrew stuff or um, she'll be in therapy about how she learned that she needs to Shema. And so Shemaing is this listening and obeying. It's, it's when Emma looks at me right in the eyes, hears what I'm saying, but then doesn't obey. By saying, listen to him, God is saying, not just listen to him, obey him. It's a statement of authority, of divine identity. What do I mean by divine identity is Israel all throughout the Old Testament was told to, I mean, they prayed it three times a day, Shema, hear Israel, hear, listen and obey Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all that you are. Obey him, trust him, put everything in him and do not Shema anything else. Don't listen or obey anyone else. Like I said, I'm a huge nerd of it. I did this huge project for school where I went through every instance of Shema in the book of Genesis, tracing it. And the whole book of Genesis can be brought down to two, to two things. When humanity listens to and obeys God, things go really well. When they Shema the voice of another is the language it uses. When they hear and listen to the voice of another, things go poorly. So what's so strange here is that God now is giving this divine identity command, listen to this one, is somehow he's sharing it with Jesus. To listen to and obey Jesus is to listen to and obey God. And so again, you're being brought up in within the divine identity here stuff, is that this is not just, 
a son of God. This is not just king. This is, this is Jesus is, is sharing the divine identity of the Trinitarian God here. He is one of those persons. And so what this means for us to listen to and obey, to Shema, the voice of Jesus, is again, it's obedience, it's allegiance, it's loyalty, it's trust. It's this is our, this is our king. And so we're going to listen to him in the course of Mark's gospel as we continue over the course of the rest of this year and moving towards Easter. And then really, you know, as long as I'm here, we're gonna be listening to him either from his teachings in the gospels or listening to him as through his spirit, he speaks through the writings of the New Testament or as the, him through the spirit was, was pointing to himself in the old. We're gonna continue to listen to him. That's what our reading and, and our teaching, what this is all about is listening to him. And so with that in mind, this is what I alluded to a moment ago. Now we're here. As we listen to him, what this means is that when he speaks to particular issues, we're going to listen. And, and, and as much as I'm here, I'm gonna be speaking to it. So what this means is like earlier this year, if that means that listening to him means 12 weeks on a biblical theology of justice, we're gonna go there and we're gonna do our best to listen to him. And when he makes claims that, that contradict our perceptions of the world or what we think is what justice may be, the work of the Christian is to hear the voice of God on Mount Hermon, listen to him. Likewise, because the prophetic vocation of not just the preacher, but of the Christian is specifically to speak truth to power based off the word of God. What this means is that as we go into a... Um, a, 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 a democratic president moving into the next four years is what this means is that the prophetic speaking truth to power means that it's going to look differently over the next four years. And those of you who might've applauded and loved large portions of the story of justice may not like what Jesus is going to speak to in the next four years. The Bible is an equal opportunity offender and it is going to speak to Issues as it sees fit, the work of those who belong to Jesus and to Christianus, his political party, is he sets the ticket agenda. And so that, that's just me setting that out there. As we go into the next four years, is we're going to listen to him. Similarly, though, for the original context or within the, the story of the narrative here is for Peter and for those early Christians to hear that to listen to him is to listen in particular how this work is going to be done. What he said last week, it's gonna come through suffering. It's gonna come through being rejected. It's gonna come through dying and being resurrected for himself and for his followers. It's gonna come through denying yourself, through taking up your cross and following me. This is what he's speaking to Peter. This is what he's speaking to those early Christians underneath Vespasian who were hearing these claims of listen to, obey, give your allegiance and loyalty to Caesar Vespasian. He is Lord, he's the son of God and he is the Messiah. Or as we're feeling that pull to listen to and, and obey the president, the biblical pattern again and again is we will listen and obey insofar as what they set is within the bounds of our listening and obeying to our true King Jesus. And so though Bo Biden didn't get up last night and make any claims of messiahship for himself, we just need to be aware the messiahship, the, like I said a moment ago, the political idolatry that can come through not just politicians, but policies, through parties, through ideology. And so for some of you that, that, that you lean in the direction, I'm not here to like stomp out people celebrating. Like this is, you know, this is, you lean the way that you lean. All I am saying is in the midst of that, we need to be aware, what, what are my expectations for this person? And so what are my expectations? And we need to, we need to come back to who, who am I listening to? But let's keep going into uh, the final bit, which is the question of restoration. Mark chapter nine, as we've been going, verse nine. And so then after this all happens, they've seen the son of God in power. They've heard the father. They've seen Elijah and Moses. They come down the mountain and Jesus charges them. Don't tell anyone what you have seen until after I've risen. The son of man has risen from the dead. And so they keep the matter to themselves, but they begin questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so they asked him, uh, Rabbi Jesus, why do you say well, sorry, excuse me. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come 
And Jesus said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things and, or it can be translated, but how is it written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so there back in verse nine, we see Jesus again, prophesies his resurrection. His mission, his kingly royal mission is going to be victory over death that is gonna come through suffering and dying and being raised into glory. But as he says this, the disciples begin to kind of argue and debate what this means rising from the dead. Within the Jewish thought, they had a vision for the resurrection of all the righteous at the end of history, but one guy in the middle of time, this is new territory. And so it leads into verse 11 through 13, which is this Elijah restoring all things, the son of man, they did to Elijah, whatever they want. These couple of verses are difficult to interpret and translate. It's a handful of interpretations here. And so um, I'll I'll just say, this is Ryan's best take, uh, what it seems to me, and and I'm pulling from a handful of other uh, kind of scholars, commentators on the topic. So what it seems to me, just to summarize this, we don't have to spend too much time on it, is that as they're coming back down the mountain, the disciples are still wrestling with the reality of a suffering Messiah, Messiah. For one, one of the reasons why they're still wrestling with this is for them, they've grown up hearing from the scribes, the Bible nerds of the day, who they held that Elijah, the prophet who we saw up on the mountain just a moment ago, would actually return and come to restore all things. This came from uh, Malachi chapter four. It was a prophecy about Elijah coming. And so they're kind of working through this. If Elijah has come, and all things are now restored, then why is there any basis for a suffering son of man? Why is, why is there suffering if everything's restored? The, the, the presence of suffering means that everything hasn't been restored. So they're, they're, just, they're trying to figure this whole thing out. And so Jesus then reply is, yes, Elijah has come first. In Matthew, he makes it explicit. Matthew's gospel, he makes it explicit. In Mark's gospel, it's been alluded to time and again that this Elijah coming before Jesus is not actually the prophet Elijah, but typified, typed in actually John the Baptist. So we're getting into a lot of, you can see why this is confusing for folks. So he says, yes, Elijah, and saying that, yes, John the Baptist came first as a forerunner to the kingdom in preaching and also in suffering. This is what he means by they did whatever they pleased. But the question he holds out is that if John the Baptist, Elijah, has restored all things, then how is it that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So to summarize, whatever restoration Elijah, John the Baptist brought, Jesus seems to be claiming that that restoration of all things was incomplete. There is still a fuller restoration that needs to be done. Jesus is pointing to his political mission to restore all things to bring all things back to an earlier, good, right, true state. That restoration has yet to be done. Again, this is the royal political mission of Jesus. So if last week we found out how he's going to do it through suffering and dying and being rejected, this week, this little restoration of all things is what he's come to do in a sense. He has come to go back to page one of the, of, of the Bible, Genesis one. He has come back to restore the garden to restore all things back to the Garden of Eden, to that state, the state that was lost of God dwelling with humanity, humanity dwelling with God, with the absence of injustice or sin, with no tears or no brokenness and no evil empires, nobody like Vespasian. This is what he has come to do. In effect, pulling from Revelation 21 and other passages, his mission is to make earth garden again. This is the political mission of Jesus. And I, and I use that, that kind of, you know, putting it that way, his, his mega claim, so that you see that this is not just pie in the sky theology kind of talk, spiritual talk Jesus is doing. The restoration of all things, all this political language, is, it's within a political context. His mission is a political one. He's using the language of, of, of what Vespasian would use of him. And so I think it's only right I can, I can borrow from that. So I actually have a red uh, hat that says make earth garden again. I was going to put it on at this point and uh, getting out of the house this morning, I totally forgot it. So you have to come to the Q and A and I'll be on the Q and A at four o'clock on Instagram. So you guys can see my make earth garden again hat that I made a couple years back. So Jesus's political mission is to make earth garden again, to restore all things back to the garden of Eden. And Jesus sets before the disciples then this kind of question, how is it written? that the restoration of all things is also gonna somehow come simultaneously with this suffering and dying Messiah. 
That question is going to hang over the disciples all the way until Christmas. And so I'm going to point to Christmas and we're going to get to the text that we're going to get to on Christmas, but you have to pretend that you haven't heard it on Christmas. Never mind. It's fine. We'll do it now. Mark 10 is where all of this builds up to. What is the tension? How does the, the restoration of all things meet with the suffering Messiah? Mark 10, 45, Jesus, after comparing himself to the political leaders of his day, says this, that the son of man, again, himself, came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus's mission, his political vision of restoring all things, of making earth garden again, is going to be accomplished not through uh, electoral votes or, or democratic power or all, you know, unanimous, whatever it might be. For him, he sees the way to reset this world, the way to bring this world back, or, or even in Revelation's language, to bring it forward to what it was always meant to be within that garden vision is going to be accomplished through him giving his life as a ransom for many. Do you remember all that language of Exodus that was happening here? This is the connection point. That the new Exodus that Elijah and Moses prophesied, that they were talking to Jesus about just up on the mountain, Jesus says that Exodus, that ransom, that redemption is going to happen through me giving my life as a ransom for many. Psalm 2, the son of God, who is the king of the world, the son of man of Daniel chapter 7 alluded to here. All of this language is now coming together and with it, the prophet Isaiah's vision for a suffering servant of Isaiah 53. All of this language is coming together in these moments of Isaiah 53, of this, this, this person who has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that he was oppressed, afflicted. And he did all of this as an offering for guilt so that we might see a prolonged days that we might be accounted as righteous. Like this is, the, this is the dynamic here. The political vision of Jesus is that this is going to come through his sacrifice on the cross. This is what we're moving towards as we move towards Easter of next year and Good Friday. This is the vision of what Jesus has come to do. It's what he's going to do in his fullness. Revelation 21 says that his uh, yet to come return. And so therefore us in the meantime, as we come back in here today, as Christians, as Christianus from last week, as a political party unto ourselves of belonging to Christ. What we commit to over the next weeks and months and years to come is that our goal is to work to foster a more garden-like world. Because of the fact that we know that it will not be here in its fullness until the return of Jesus, we don't get swept up in utopian idealism. We faithfully work to reflect the coming reality of who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish to make earth garden again. And so, and this is done again, not through democratic vision and not through power, not th it's done as we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and we follow him. And so as we close this apocalypse, this gospel in its entirety, this, this book, this Mark, this, what we're reading today was the seedbed to this restoration resistance movement that happened within Rome that has continued over the past 2000 years. And so as we continue into the next four, it's a helpful reminder in this moment of who truly is the glorious King, worthy of all of our hope, where our refuge, where blessing can be found. It's a revelation and reminder of who we and all political powers will answer to the true son of God. To borrow from President-elect Biden's repeated phrase from last week, may we over these next four years keep the faith, not a faith in this nation, faith in its leaders, or in democracy, or in legal due course, or faith for the sake of faith, like some kind of just blind hope. But faith, as we've seen here, faith as allegiance, faith as trust, faith as loyalty in the true, unveiled, suffering, rejected, killed, and yet resurrected, reigning, and returning Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.